Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Hello team, this is an interview I'm doing for Sophie at the Daily Star, excuse me, um, and it's for Armed Forces Day, I believe. So Sophie, thank you very much. I just realised in the, while answering your questions in the video, I didn't mention my books. Um, I don't really make money off my writing, not of any consequence, but what, what I do get to do is share the um, the story of men's mental health, which is just grossly overlooked in this country, and also the veteran story, um, the massive amount of veterans. I think we've had 33 already this year commit suicide. Generally, more veterans will commit suicide after a conflict than were killed in the conflict ex itself, which is a horrifying statistic. So my first book was, uh, if you can see that, Eating Smoke, One Man's Descent into Crystal Meth Psychosis in Hong Kong's Triad Heartland, available on Amazon. Um, it's the story of how I left the Royal Marines to run a successful business in Hong Kong, but uh, Six months later, I was chronically addicted to crystal meth and working as a nightclub doorman for the Hong Kong triads. Um, and during this time, I was heavily in what's known as clinical psychosis. So I kind of really lost the, the, the plot. Doctors uh, didn't think I would ever recover. Uh, but this next book, 40 Nights, um, it's... The sequel to Eating Smoke, although it is a standalone book. So 40 Nights, available on Amazon. This is the story of how, without any doctors, without any addiction groups like AA or whatever, without any really much support from family or friends, I picked myself out of a very bad situation. Or a dark situation, a dark experience, I should say, and went on to achieve every goal I ever, you know, dreamt of across 80, 80 countries around the world. And I'm available for public speaking on a whole range of um, subjects from mental health, resilience, addiction, uh, adventuring, Running nineteen, you know, nine hundred and ninety-nine miles uh, non-stop, and folks can contact me through my website, christhrall.com. Brilliant. Hiya, Sophie. Um, thank you very much for doing this. I'm just going to dive uh, dive straight into your questions. Um, hope you can see me uh, all right here. It's a bit dark. So um, if you go to christhrall.com, you can get all my bio, you know, basically the, the, the whole outline of my, my life story. And more recently, my 999 miles nonstop run from John O'Groats to Land's End, which I raised... Um, 18, or I think about 18,000 pounds, the Batten Foundation. I've ran on my own, i.e. unsupported. I slept by the side of the road when I sort of got tired and then got up the next day and went on again. Um, I ran an ultramarathon every day. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, you got a question here about, you know, has my book helped other veterans? I'll talk about that, but my run really did massively help a lot of people. I, don't, I think not just veterans, but um, 
with mental health issues being so prevalent in society now, um, to just get up and go and do something. I did it with uh, no training whatsoever. I'd been um, disabled for three years with um, a spine injury. I'd had surgery, um, open, you know, sort of major open surgery once and, a, and another, I think, four, four spinal procedures. And uh, no, I just went up to John O'Groats, said I'm going to run the length of the country, I'm going to run an ultramarathon a day, I'm going to carry 14 kilo rucksack and I'm just going to do it. And there's no other... Um, you know, there's going to be no other option. I I am going to do it. And that's that mindset is probably hard to understand for a lot of people. But when you've been through the experiences I have in my life, you know how to 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 um, you know how to take on things, you know, and you know how to get your mind in the right place. And um, you know how to. Uh, prioritize what's important in life and what's not and what what you're capable of you know how to eat well and um, and focus yeah I guess focus so going into your questions what inspired you to join the Royal Marines um, I was homeless living in my car a friend of mine whose father was a, a Falklands hero, you could say, um, had just joined the Marines where he'd just done what was called the Potential Recruits course. That's a three-day introduction to Royal Marines life. You go along to a limp, to Limpston and, you know, you're just kids. We were all just kids, right? But then they put you through the whole experience but condensed to three days so you're running the endurance course the assault course um you're 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 falling backwards off a, a 10 meter high diving board you're getting um uh, interviews with um naval personnel to see you know do you know anything about the marines what why why are you here what what are your sort of intentions and and uh so my friend came back off this three-day course and he was buzzing, you know, he's now go, he's accepted into Royal Marines training and he spent ages telling me how hard it was and, and uh, yeah, I mean, of course it's hard. And then he, he, he said those, um, you know, what can we say, infamous words, but of course you can't do it. Well, you know, I'd had a challenging upbringing been kicked out of home, you know, at 15, again at 17, hence why I was living in my car. I'd been to five schools before the age of 10 years old. And, you know, I don't need to dictate all that. You can kind of guess my childhood wasn't, wasn't the, you know, the smooth, the smoothest. And, um, so for my friend to say to me, well, you couldn't do it. I was like, Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> and I went down to the recruiting office on the Monday morning. And, uh, yeah, you know, I set out to prove him wrong. And um, I set out to show the family that had kicked me out that I was worth more than than um, than they said I was. And so I probably joined for all the wrong reasons. Uh, you were 18 when you joined. Was it hard to adjust to the job at such a young age? This is a brilliant question. It, it's like this. For me, it was a golden opportunity from being unemployed, um, probably unemployable, you know, I had two O-levels from school and I think three GCSEs. Um, and suddenly I'd, I'd kind of just sidestepped myself into an elite career where I was getting paid yeah, an enormous amount of money at, at 18. It, I was, it's a career you can, you're so proud of, you know, you're, you're, 
you're training to earn the Green Beret. It's the most respected military accolade worldwide, you know, from a sort of um, uh, infant, infantry perspective. I mean, you know, I wasn't joining the Special Forces. I, that, that, that's something that, that comes later for, for Marines. But, you know, I was joining the, the hardest military training course in the world and that I just, I had no, I didn't think about yet tomorrow, right? I didn't think about tomorrow. I thought about today, what is on our training schedule? What do I have to do to get through today? Of course, I have my doubts. Like, you know, I mean, a big part of Royal Marines training is to make you feel that you're not good enough, that you're going to fail, that everyone's looking at you. And I I just got through through all that sofa, you know. I I um I was caught up in it. It was it was better than being unemployed and living in my car. Um to the other side of the coin, you know, I know 16-year-old guys that joined up. And I think for all of us of that um that naivety, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I say it and I say it again, you know, we was kids. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of infighting, you can say. And when you're, you know, when you're 18, I was nine and a half stone. <laughs> I, was, I was tiny you know I had to really stand up for myself a lot I got a lot of shit for um, just I think in that, that aggressive and military environment everyone tries to scapegoat everybody else to, to, to put the focus off them so from that perspective you know it's, it's yeah it's a big old thing but no, it wasn't hard to adjust at all. I went straight into it. I, I'm not going to say I loved it because that's not that that doesn't sum it up. I was just involved in something, and and I, I, if I was honest, I just wanted the green beret. I wanted to prove I could be a commando, and I I didn't think outside that parameter, you know, which was probably lucky for me and I've always been lucky I've, I've, I've never been like a homesick guy I didn't have a girlfriend um at home so uh so no it wasn't it wasn't hard to adjust it's just uh it's just an effort to to just keep doing what you're being asked to do and make sure you don't fail everything you know you get a lot of um tests on the way as you go through this eight months of training and you you you're obviously the training team is building you up for these tests some are physical some are mental some are uh, a, a, a skill level like camouflage and concealment for example um and some of them are just bloody hard like running 30 miles across dartmoor carrying full equipment you know carrying your full fighting equipment um and I just took on one at a time. My benefits is I was very good at the gym work. I, I My dad built me a climbing frame when I was five years old and it was the, the height of our house. And he built it out of scaffolding poles and it had a big rope swing. So from like five years old, I've been climbing and, and that just came so naturally to me. Um, the running quite ironically, considering I've just run a, th a thousand miles and it was, you know, I kind of made easy work of it, I think you could say. Uh, the running was really, really, really hard. It was the the running in full kit, the the speed marches. I I can't put into words how much pain I was in from probably 200 yards in. And some of them were six miles, some of them were nine miles, some of them were 12 miles, um, and the last one's 30 miles. And that, that took everything, um, took everything in me. 
and I wouldn't give up because I wouldn't give my parents the satisfaction of seeing me fail. They didn't want me to fail, of course they didn't, you know, but we had all this challenges in our family growing up and there was such bad words has been spoken over the years that, 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 you know, us three kids, I've got, um, I've got, um, a sister, a brother and a sister who was born later, but the, the, yeah, we all just <laughs> went through quietly, you know, quite a lot of shit. In fact, an interesting thing here for your article is people talk about PTSD a lot. And my question to the science world or the social world is, you know, what about guys like me? I, I had PT, PTSD before I joined, you know, as a, I re, a really challenging childhood. And it's, you know, a, damaging is the only word you can really use. And and you carry that damage with you through life, don't you? And when you're in new environments like the military, um, you've got all these other um, kind of angles and challenges co co coming at you from all different directions. And that is interacting with like what your life experience has already been. And, and, and so... To maybe give a simple example, if you come from a very stable background, maybe your family's a bit middle class, um, you know, mummy and daddy help you with your homework, they made sure you got through school and you got three A-levels and da-da-da-da, and then you decided to join the Marines, you're probably going to be quite a well-adjusted character, right? And then, of course, you got guys like me that were just, you know, didn't really know who I was, um, didn't really like violence because I'd just already seen too much of it in my life. Um, growing up as a school kid in the 70s was incredibly violent and I, I think people these days would, they wouldn't understand that. They, they they wouldn't be able to relate to it. But when I was a school kid, it's like any adult could just come up and belt you. And quite often they belted you because they they thought you were a kid that had done something wrong. It turned out they got the wrong person. But like an, a complete stranger could, could come running across the road and smack you around the head. I mean, you're like six years old for crying out loud. Well, how, how are you supposed to make sense of that? And that, and that was normal back then. So going back to the PTSD thing, yeah, I think a lot of us carried issues um, into our adult life from there. And then, of course, you chuck a war scenario on top of that where you see horrendous stuff. Then you leave the military after and you get into the, the can I say, evils of drinking, drugs, depression... You know, you get family problems and it all starts to, you know, cascade in on itself. And then, then you can see why so many servicemen end up homeless and end up on the suicide statistics. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not good. So what was serving in Northern Ireland like? I suppose the first thing I should say is, I was 19 by that stage. What what the hell did I know about global politics? You know, I was just told we're going over to this um, part of the United Kingdom um, that there's some good guys and there's some bad guys. And, and when you're that young and you... you can't relate this to anything else so you just accept the narrative and I mean we were servicemen it wasn't like we could turn around and say no sorry we're not doing you know we're not doing that it was it was a, it, it, it was I mean that in itself is quite crazy um, 
we arrived there and we were traveling from the airport to our barracks and they chucked us in the back of these armored vehicles. They were called pigs back in the day. Um, and I was the guy at the back of this particular pig. There was, I don't know, maybe 12 of us crammed into it and it was, it was driving us to our camp. And I was looking out, there was a slot like this big. So what are we talking, 12, 12 inches wide by three inches. And I, I'm pushing open and I'm looking it out and I'm trying to take in Belfast. Um, obviously somewhere I'd never been before. And, and uh, we drove past a pub and as we drove past this pub, there was all guys like, you know, smoking and drinking outside the pub and they just stopped what they're doing, dropped everything and they scrambled to pick up any object that they could and they just started throwing it, throwing it at our vehicle. And of course, I was the guy looking out the window and I'm like, guys, guys, you won't, you won't believe this. I mean, it was surreal. Um, you've got to remember, you're an, a 19-year-old soldier, Marine in my case. You're going on patrol and you're walking down the main street in the United Kingdom. And you're carrying a machine gun. It's, that's just crazy in itself what got crazier is when we were we patrolled into an area called the Ardoyne um, we'd not been in this area before and we were crossing a, a a park and as we stepped onto the grass an IRA sniper opened up from behind us they they'd um They'd taken a family hostage during the day and they'd taken over their house. And the guy had, was out the back, basically out the back window with um, a Kalashnikov, which is not exactly a sniper's rifle, but it was just the weapon of choice in this particular incident. And he fired our uh, best part of 10 shots at our patrol. And you could just hear, and I looked at, I just saw the grass flicking, flicking up around my feet. Um, we ran, we took cover, and then I looked back, and my, uh, what we call tail end Charlie, there's a guy called, um, in my book, I call him Jock Campbell, in my book, Eating Smoke. Um, and he's just sparked out on the grass. And I was the first aider in the team. So my first reaction is I started running back to, you know, to go and get this guy. And I could just hear my team screaming, get down, get down, get down, Chris, get down. I thought, well, I can't, you know, I can't do that. My, my buddy's out there and he's injured. And, and, and so I started running back. And as I ran back, his head popped up and he, started looking around frantically. He grabbed his equipment, which had all been flung from his body and come came running over. He said, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. And I ripped open his flat, his um, combat jacket and I pulled his um, flat jacket off. And I'm, I'm like, Jock, you're not hit, you're not hit. I'm fucking hit, I'm fucking hit, I'm fucking hit. And it, and it was all just so confusing. And the uh, long shot of that was he'd, we'd been opened up on by this IRA sniper. He'd fired these 10 rounds. He'd obviously gone for George, um, Jock, sorry, uh, Jock first. And he'd taken the aerial off his radio equipment He'd shot through the sling on his um, SC-80 and then the third round had hit him in, in the chest 
which had spun him around, which is why his equipment had flown off. And then obviously the guy had then set his sights on me, which is why the ground was flicking up like this. Um, and fortunately for, for Jock, the, the, the wadding of the vest that he was wearing protected him from um, being killed. You know, so we all lived to fight another day and it was, uh, yeah, it was insane. We, we were bombed. Uh, we ran out the front gate of our camp. As we ran out the front gate, the IRA bombed the back gate. We were mortar bombed in our beds one night. So the, um, the mortar alarm went off and these mortars went up in the sky and they came down and fortunately they missed everybody in the camp um, but they knocked a, a, a kid off his bicycle um, I think the kid was fine but you know I don't think these things are an exact science uh, and we got sniped out in the countryside one, one time when I was leading a patrol um, as I stepped into a, a gateway of a, you know, in a hedge, a round just, just came, came across me. Um, and Jock and I, we just pepper potted up this steep hill as we came out on the main road across this, it was like Heathland, Moorland. We came out on the main road and there was a car parked. 200 meters down with its um it still had its light its lights on which was kind of strange but and we had a quick conversation right what to do and as we had that conversation the car drove off so you know nothing really ever came of it but uh it was the 20th anniversary of british troops in the province and the IRA had put out this declaration they were going to kill as many Marines servicemen as possible. And in one day, one particular day, we I think there was 176 violent incidents. So we're talking bombings, shootings, kidnappings, hijackings, uh, buses being set on fire, post offices robbed, this kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, that was what Northern Ireland was like. And, um, and uh, yeah, we took it on the chin. We dealt with it, you know, professionally. And um, I can't say fortunately, but we, we lost one Marine um, very early on in the tour. I'd let the patrol out of the, I was standing um, um, like I was guard duty on the main gate and half the patrol went out the back gate, half the patrol went, went out my front gate and as I let them out um, about five minutes later he just said <laughs> And you could hear all this rifle fire just going off down the road. And it turned out a, a car had driven towards the patrol, fired two shots at the Marine, which, which killed him dead. And then the Marines had opened up and they'd fired 18 rounds um, in, in, in return. And, uh, yeah, that was... Uh, that was what Northern Ireland was like. And sadly, um, our brother was uh, killed. How did life change when you moved to Hong Kong? So I moved to Hong Kong. I'd, I'd, I'd started a business in the Marines. It was marketing electronic products. It was through a network marketing um organization and my business became really really successful in Hong Kong 
to the point where I was kind of being touted as the next millionaire in 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 this marketing company. So I put my notice in the Marines to go and move to Hong Kong, which is where obviously all my, all the action was. And by the time I got, I'd served my eighteen months notice. The um, the the company supplying our network, the products, it was called Quorum International, had collapsed, and I literally was just stranded in kind of Hong Kong with no means to make any money. I'd gone from a hundred thousand pound turnover of my business a month um, to literally nothing. And when I was making the, the the kind of big bucks, all of that was going back into my business. So it wasn't as though I had like, you know, I've got to stop hitting this light, sorry. It wasn't as though like I had massive um, uh, uh, savings or anything. So, so, so there I was, yeah, I was, to, to answer your question, I found myself exactly back in the place from before I joined the Marines. So I was unemployed. I was bunking with a guy, so I was, you know, virtually homeless. I mean, I had no place of my own. Um, I had no career, no job, and I had no way, you know, I had nothing to offer anyone. So, but on... To, but further to that, like I didn't want to go back to the UK. I just, I loved Hong Kong. It was great. I'd gone out there to make my fortune and, you know, I was determined to do it. And I took a job in a computer company. It was pretty crazy. Um, we, we sold DRAM chips, which is computer memory. Um, I'm trying to build up to your, your next question here which is how did you spiral into crystal meth addiction? So I took a job in this crazy computer company and we were supposed to be selling this DRAM on the international market. But the market in, in, in this commodity, which is, it sold like gold on the, on the market. I mean, the prices used to go up and down every day and you'd buy here and you'd sell there and you'd, you'd get guys from Indonesia, Australia, Singapore, you know, Hong Kong itself, the UK, United States, all phoning into your office trying to get to, to get this um, DRAM trading like gold dust, right? But of course, I didn't speak Cantonese. I didn't know any of the suppliers. I was, I was basically um, like the, the, the other 10 um Guailo, as we're called. Guailo, it means foreign devil. Um, I was just there to make up the numbers. And you'd need to read my book to understand this. But um, the, 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 this very old wizened Chinese boss, he thought, if I've got white guys in my business, it's going to look like I've got a real international business. He didn't really care whether we sold anything because he's a multimillionaire anyway, and this, and the trades were coming off the Chinese, um, the Cantonese um, people in the office anyway. They were making like, you know, up to a million dollars each trade. So it didn't really matter what we did, but we, we kind of looked the part, you know. So I did that for seven months. And it becomes so boring um, that one day a guy said to me, um, a fellow expat working in the country, in the company, sorry, uh, a guy called Neil Diamond. Um, he said, Chris, do you want to try some of this? And we'd, we'd gone to the toilet on our lunch break, you know, and he said, Chris, do you want to try some of this? And uh, I said, yeah, well, what, what is it? He said, oh, it's crystal meth. Oh. Oh, that sounds like fun, you know. Um it kind of broke up the monotony of that day. So I just, I smoked one line of, of um, crystal meth off a piece of silver foil. And I didn't think anything else, you know, else of it. 
um, I went back to my desk and my life just changed. You know, my life, what, what I thought was life just changed. I just had this amazing sense of well-being come over me. And the way I describe it in eating smoke is it's like getting high on the finest champagne, but without having all that kind of like, oh, I feel fucking pissed, you know, that that heady feeling. It's just, just a real high. And it, it, it kind of goes up and doesn't really stop. But along with that feeling of being really nicely high you get this amazing energy and this enormous sense of creativity and so my next move was like right I'm, I'm I've got to get some more of this stuff you know I can't I can't wait and um I I started just to take it more and more and it used it used to just be You know, three times a week in an evening, I'd just smoke a bit of this stuff. And I I got really into writing, hence why I'm now a writer. And I, I was getting into writing musical lyrics and stuff. And it really opened my eyes up to the fact that at school, I was basically told I was a failure and the system failed me. And I left feeling a failure. And yet, suddenly here's this wonder drug telling me no actually you're not you know you're you're actually quite good at stuff and you know that's a dangerous um it's a it's good in one respect but of course it's kind of taking you down a i don't want to say dangerous path because like i love my life and i've got no regrets so how can i say it was bad sophie right you know and please i hope don't make make it out in your article that it's bad because addiction it's challenging sadly in, in statistically very rare cases people die but it's it's really rare but for people like myself it's like we needed to go through that because I had such a damaged sense of self growing up like I didn't know who I was and because you know, who who wants to go through life not not knowing who they are? And through this process of addiction, which really took me down low, I I eventually you know built myself back up on a much better footing, if that makes sense, and went on to achieve every single thing I ever dreamt of in the whole world, you know. And that lesson from the perspective of servicemen who are now homeless and committing suicide, you know, it needs to be told that it's not, it's, it, it doesn't have to be such a negative thing, mental health, right? You know, having a breakdown, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, people take drugs the world over, you know, society needs to start waking up to this instead of pretending like it's it's rare examples and it's and it's kind of so bad i'm hope i hope i'm making sense here so that's how i kind of um spiraled in in into addiction um it's a tough ride it seems all good at the time the reason people continue the action i.e taking the drug when everything around them is starting to break down and fall down and their life is falling apart is is when you take a substance that just makes you feel the best you've ever felt and you think it's like the answer to your prayers and it and it overcomes all this you know traumatic stress that you've had all your life why would you not want to keep doing that you know I mean that you know people uh, people take a lot of prescription medication because they want to feel like that good all the time, right? You know, it's 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 not hugely different, and and so that's why I kept on down that path. Is to me, 
this drug was the answer. It made me feel great. I, I felt I could get stuff done. I didn't like not want to be on this drug. But of course, unbeknown to me, my life's falling apart, but, but I can't see that because I can only see the brilliance of this, this pathway that I'm, that I'm on, you know? So I ended up, um, I went through a succession of jobs. I lost most of them through various reasons. I, I was DJ of the biggest club in Southern China. It was a, I completely blagged the job. I'd never been a DJ before. I just went along and I, I kind of used my personality and outgoing kind of Marine-like um, persona to completely blag this job. And I was DJing in a nightclub. So like my first night was 300 people. And, and uh, you know, I lost that job through... Oh, you have to read my book. It's just too much. I, I had a job selling advertising space in a, di a business directory. And it turned out it didn't actually exist. I mean, it was there, like one copy in the office on, on the shelf. And the boss never printed anymore. But we would phone up companies and, and uh, basically con them into advertising in this book. And they would pay all the money. And of course, well, the book was never, you know, there was maybe, I don't know, 30 copies published, a few in the office in case anyone ever came came to visit. But it was no, you know, it was, it, there was no book. And there was a lot of kind of those sort of scams going on in Hong Kong. And, and I couldn't do that. I mean, I did it once and twice. And I realized we were kidding these, these, you know, business executives who were just signing checks without even realizing. And I, I couldn't do that. So I took a job um, as a doorman. Uh, I thought I'd kind of get back to my marine roots. Um, and the drugs just like kept getting the better of me. I was getting iller and iller. I went from being a 14 stone bodybuilder. Like a, it, was, it was huge. I had, nine, I had 19 inch biceps. They were ridiculous. Um, and uh, yeah, I gradually just went down to probably the nine and a half stone I was when I when I'd uh, joined the Marines and I was wandering the streets homeless I'd started to develop psychosis so I didn't really know what was going on I mean I was living my life but I just it's everything started to become this big conspiracy. I was reading far too much into situations. I'd, I'd pick up a book, look at the back cover and like the information on it would be just, it would just seem like there was some conspiracy going on and the way the, 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 the words were. And, and of course I was in clinical psychosis and then, you know, I wasn't to know that you know, when you're, when you're mentally ill, you don't, necessarily know you you know you don't necessarily know you're mentally ill so and it was kind of crazy because nobody that around me knew that I was this ill they just saw me as Chris and so I took a job in a nightclub it turned out uh it was run by the 14k the 14k or Hong Kong's probably the probably the biggest triad um, society and also the one that's sort of revered for being the most violent um, and I didn't know this I just thought I was getting a job as a doorman and it was my third job as a doorman by that by, by this time and it wasn't until the fir my first night on the job that um, a fellow expat called me over and Chris do you know the the, the deal here and it was like I'm sure you're going to tell me. He said, yeah, well, they're all triads. He said, this guy here, this is my partner on the door. It's called Chu Chai. Um, he said, yeah, he's a street fighter. He's what they call uh, Magi, means li little horse. He's uh, like a triad runner. But don't be mistaken, he's like 
one of the most violent men you could ever meet. And if you ever see him in a fight, he, he, you know, he will just pick up anything if he thinks he can, you know, kind of cave an enemy's head in with it. And he said, this guy here, and he pointed to my other fellow doorman. So it was me, just the expat, and two triad doorman, uh, Daisu. Um, and this guy was like six foot seven. Uh, Daisu's um, a paid assassin, or he's a triad assassin. He said, every so often, he, you'll see him disappear, and they, they'll smuggle him over the border into China, and he'll carry some hit out on someone, and then then they'll smuggle him back, right? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, what what can I say? Um, and then he said, oh, your boss here, David, he's Dilo. Um, it means big brother. Big brother is like a triad gang boss. He runs this whole club. He He's a very important man in Wan Chai and, like, don't. Don't mess with him, you know. And um, to be honest, like they were really good to me. There were a lot of people trying to get me involved in crime and I wasn't like massively up for, you know, I still kind of like my own person. Um, and you ask here, like, when did your life reach its turning point? Um, well, it's kind of, that's kind of a difficult question to ask because I had probably three or four different turning points. Um, one night I'd kind of fallen out with all these triads and they set me up for what I thought I was going to be murdered in this club. Um, the situation just started getting really heavy and really nasty. And the, I had triads just coming into the club from the other the other doorman from other clubs in Wan Chai saying, you're going to die tonight, you know. And that was... It wasn't nice. <laughs> um, I, it was really kind of easy to be intimidated but just because of my Royal Marines background I wasn't you know I just wasn't gonna show any kind of fear and yeah as it all turned out again you know need to read my book but it was it was all like it was some sort of initiation game, if, if that makes sense. But anyway, I, I'll move on. When did your life reach its turning point? Um, I got so ill, I tried to shin across a cable going across um, uh, the Jaffe Road in Hong Kong. Um, it was going between my skyscraper and the skyscraper on the other side of the street or, or tenement buildings. And it was carrying a water pipe. And, and one night in my um, madness, I suppose you'd say, I thought like I had to crawl across this pipe. I thought it was everything my commander training had set me up for. I thought like when I, if I just crawl across this wire, when I get to the other side, everything will make sense. I'll know why I'm in Hong Kong, why it's been such a challenging you know, year, why everything just has gone so wrong for me. I, I mean, I really was that ill, Sophie, you know, and and I started to crawl across this wire and I'm looking down and the, the cars are tiny and the people were tiny. And I got about like five foot out and I'm swinging there doing my commando crawl. And I, and I just suddenly thought, what am I doing? Or, like, what, why am I doing it? What? I don't have to prove anything to anyone, you know? Like, I don't, and I don't need to, and, and what? why am I doing this? Because 
I'm thinking like I'm going to get accepted if I get to the other side. And and I thought about my brother, who's like my best friend, and like how would it be for him if he heard I'd throw myself off a skyscraper in Hong Kong? Because that's what people would say, right? They wouldn't understand that. No, it was the opposite. I was like trying to prove that um, nothing's wrong with me, you know? And um, and that was it. And tears just started pouring down my face. And I, I suddenly in that moment, I really missed my brother who I hadn't, I hadn't called him for a year. I hadn't really spoken to him. And, and, um, and yeah, that was, you know, that was one turning point. Um, oh, hang on. Sorry, I'm still recording. Um, and sorry, bear with me. Um, but my kind of final turning point was I was back in the UK. I, I spent two years after Hong Kong absolutely depressed. I didn't know I was depressed because no one, you know, thinks to tell you that you might be depressed, right? Um, I was, the only time I could function is if I could get hold of drugs, any kind of amphetamine. There was nothing like the ice in Hong Kong. There was nothing that strong in the UK, but if I could get some, some speed, methamphetamine it's called you know that then I could function for like three days and then I would crash I'd be depressed again for for, for a week um, and um, bear with me so yeah where was I um, so yeah I'm back in the UK um, in my mind, I guess I'd lost everything. You know, I'd lost my career in the Marines. I'd lost a million dollar business. I, worse still, I just couldn't see a future in myself. I mean, you know, I had no qualifications, just just a few O-levels and, well, two O-levels. I had no, no trade. I hadn't, you know, um, trained for a trade in, in, in the military. Um, and it was a, a really miserable time and the only way the only way I could raise myself out of this depression was to take drugs but because I had no money I could only buy a little bit and then I'd crash and then I'd get my benefit check again I'd buy a little bit more and I'd be great for three days and then I'd crash and that that went on for ages and then one day I had um, what I guess you call an epiphany I woke up one day and I just thought, my God, it's like, this, these drugs, they're not working anymore, are they? They're not working anymore. And, and if I was honest, they probably hadn't worked for me for quite a long time. And why was I still putting myself through this? And the sun was shining through my window and I just gazed at that sun and it did two things really. It, it it reminded me that there was a world outside I no longer felt a part of. I was almost I was ashamed of myself. I hadn't bought any new clothes for years. Um, my house was an absolute mess. And I just asked myself the question, Chris, why? Why why have you done this to yourself? You know? And then I thought about that little kid that, that I was, um, like a toddler that I didn't ask for all the shit that I'd been through as a kid. But like I, I'm the adult now, right? So I'm, I'm the guy that should be looking after that kid and I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm abusing myself, you know, I'm, I'm abusing myself through drugs and, and through bad thinking. And, and in that moment, um, the other factor was this sun was shining and it's kind of telling me like everything's going to be all right and that I'm all right and that the world's all right and that I'm really, really lucky that I'm still 
you know, that I'm still in this world. And um, when you've been in the Marines, you know, you lose a lot of friends. You lose a lot of friends, not just through combat, but through misadventure, motor motorcycle accidents. And, you know, I had one friend uh, was killed on a night out running away from the police. You know, he, he jumped off a building and he... Um, he landed on a fence and it impaled him and, 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 you know, he died. And, and I just made a promise to myself right there and then in that moment that I was going to turn things around, that I wasn't going to try and be an angel. You know, it wasn't about like, hey, let's stop doing drugs. And it was more about let's get some balance back in your life, Chris, you know. And that's what I did. And I obviously cut down on the drugs that I was taking and and I started to make a conscious effort to try to do one thing every day what even if it was just the washing up you know that was like a massive leap forward for me and um and in some part of that process I came across an advert for people uh, volunteers required to go and work in Africa so I studied six months at a, a university in Norway and I worked for a further six months in Mozambique with street children. Um, and it was just humbling and it was ripe for me at that time in my life. I then drove a, a bus full of volunteers to India and back and we wrote articles about people living in poverty. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was me turning it around, and and I I took a globe, I had a world globe, and I just marked on it every well, similar to you know what you can see behind me, no surprise, and I marked on it everywhere that I was going to go. So including everywhere I'd already been in the Marines, you know, there's about eighty countries across all seven continents, and I traveled them one by one. I put a backpack on. I backpacked from um, Alaska all the way down to the southern tip of Argentina. Um, I've, I've traveled to every single country in North, South and Central America now, uh, well, at least on the mainland. Um, I've, as I said, lived, worked and traveled now in 80 different countries. I'm a pilot, skydiver, um, advanced scuba diver. I'm an Antarctic explorer, best-selling author, university graduate. Um, I'm an ultra runner, obviously. I run a thousand miles nonstop. I'm a, uh, I ran the London Marathon in three hours, 56. And... And more recently, I'm a father. You know, I have a gorgeous partner. She really is just more than I ever could have believed in, really. Um, my son, Harry, you know, I kind of always had this dream. I never expected to have kids. or I wasn't massively impassioned about it like some people are, right? But I always kind of had this feeling like if I had a kid, wouldn't it be great if he was like the best kid in the world? The most handsome, the, 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 the funniest. And if you meet my Harry, you, you know, you know, that's exactly what I've got. It's just incredible. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a very lucky man, you know, and I, I, no, I have no regrets. I don't think addiction is a bad thing, you know. Sadly, if people die, yeah, of course they think that's bad. But, you know, mental health is not something to be ashamed of. It's something to that that can be an experience that you get, you gain from. Um, the doctors doubted you could overcome addiction and depression. How did you prove them wrong? You know, I didn't set out to prove the doctors wrong. It's just that they just couldn't deal with someone like me. I was a proud ex-serviceman and 
I was on my life track. And of course, your doctors just want to take you off it because they want you to be normal, what is normal in their books, right? And and that it's a process. Life is a process. And everything's got to be done at the time that's right for you. So it wasn't like I set out to prove them wrong or, or, or I had a dislike for them or anything. It's just, it's just, you know, they, they couldn't really help a person like me, I guess. I'm too independent. And, and of course, crystal meth is not something that's massive in the UK. So they didn't really understand that as a drug. I then had psychosis, which just flagged up alarm bells. They thought, I was mentally ill and I would be like that for the rest of my life. And um, I'm lucky, you know, when I stopped the crystal meth, the psychosis went away. Um, you've used your platform to speak about your experiences and raise awareness for veterans and mental health. Do you think enough is done to help veterans when they're discharged? Oh, absolutely not. You know, I, I, as a military number, you're expendable. That's just it. In the eyes of the government, you're a commodity. You're there to go and fight the wars of the ruling elite to make the Tony Blairs, um, you know, and the George Bushes and the, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers extremely rich, rich you know, or, or, or powerful, should I say. And, 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 and that really is what your job is in the modern life. Um, you know, these past conflicts are dubious to say the least, right? And that in itself is a factor which has damaged so many of our young men and women. You know, it's one thing giving your all for something you can believe in and, and you know, for freedom and equality and and good against evil, but when you realize that your efforts, you've just been taken advantage of, you know, what am I supposed to say, you know? Um, is enough done to help? No, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely not, not, not enough. Um, for a start, we need special courts like they have in America that deal with veterans issues, not because we deserve special treatment, um, you know, that we're better people in any way, but we, we just have unique issues because of the mindset that I've explained, because of the people they are when we join up, then what we go through and then what we have to experience afterwards. It puts us in a unique situation. You can find yourself a criminal, as I was technically taking drugs, but like, are you really a criminal or are you a victim? It, I'm going to say that you're more, more kind of victim, right? So just putting, locking people up in prison is, um, is futile in, in my situation. You know, I needed support. I needed help. I needed, um, you know, people that would support my my uh, rehabilitation, okay? Um, you know, when you're in the military, you have everything taken care of. If you have any kind of issue, there's someone there in the medical profession that's going to help you, whether, whether it's drugs, alcohol, mental health, physical health. It's, it's all taken care of. And the second you leave, it's nothing. It's like, go and see your GP and services are that they, they're just not there or they're there but the waiting list is so long or the funding isn't um, available or or the the expertise isn't isn't in place yeah. last question i uh, did write a book help your healing process no absolutely not um i didn't write a book for any kind of healing stuff. I wrote a book because I wanted to be an author and I wanted to get over that thing in my life where I had nothing to offer and no career prospect. So I thought, what can I do? Well, I can maybe try writing. I think I could be good at that. 
So I wrote about my Hong Kong story. Um, it, the other side of that coin is I've just trawled up stuff that was like 20, 30 years ago now. It's stuff I should have dealt with and not even be thinking about now. And of course, I ha now have to think about it every day. So it's, um, it's, it's, no, it doesn't help me heal at all. It's the other way around. It, it, it kind of keeps the wounds open. Um, but if it can help someone, you know, then so be it. Has your book helped other veterans on, it, it's helped a lot of people. I think it's helped a lot of civilians to understand what us um, veterans go through. I think it was brought home to me more with my run when I when I um, ran from John John O'Groats to Lands End to raise awareness of veteran suicide. Then I had massive feedback. I had people writing to me whose partner had killed themselves. Um, you know, ex-forces who'd kill themselves. I had people that were thinking of killing themselves that, that wrote to me to say thank you. You know, it, it, it had a massive, massive effect on people um, for the positive. So, yeah. Okay, so, sorry if I've gone on so long. I, I hope that's just about covered it. It's a lot of information. Um, I hope you can make some sense of it message me if there's anything more I can help you with and um, on behalf of our veterans you know thank you for for taking an interest in our story friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username Chris Thrall Instagram Chris Thrall thank you